Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Keenan Johnson, aerospace engineer, and portfolio founder Karan Talati of First Resonance. Uh, Karan, Keenan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, sir. So, uh, Karan, why don't we start with you? Why don't you just uh, define what First Resonance is and what is the massive problem that, that you are solving? Yeah, sure thing. So, First Resonance is a software company down in Los Angeles. Um, I'll talk a little bit about my background, but essentially, you know, aerospace industry, automotive industry, manufacturing industry um, is, is huge uh, and, and they're very legacy. So what we're doing is uh, rethinking how manufacturing is done. Uh, there's a lot of things affecting manufacturing even today. We'll get into some of that in the cultural zeitgeist. But uh, what we're doing is making it very easy for engineers to get information into their manufacturing process and then back out in an understandable way that can uh, power better hardware for the future. Awesome. And how did you sort of navigate the idea maze of, of wanting to do that? And what was the best approach? And what's the best uh, sort of wedge into, into that? Yeah, definitely. So um, my background comes from, uh, so I studied mechanical engineering and then ended up in Los Angeles to work at SpaceX. Uh, we were in a huge scramble to really increase the number of uh, rockets that we were building uh, at high quality. Uh, but we were continuing to iterate on engineering, which is very different than how things have been done in the past. You do, you know, five, 10 years of your development process, throw it over the fence into manufacturing. uh, And then whatever happens there happens there. Uh, We were doing everything simultaneously. So that got me uh, really applying software at the problem. Uh, A lot of us were applying software at the problem. And uh, so, yeah, interesting things came out of that. And that's what started First Resonance. One of the terms you were using for a while was you're bringing data science to rocket science. Yeah, uh, bringing data science to rocket science is definitely one way to look at it. Uh, I think even before that is really even just like flexible structures and allowing the collaboration. Uh, Manufacturing is a highly collaborative environment. Uh, There are multiple different types of engineers applying their skills and their knowledge at one particular component. Um, So even facilitating that and then layering on top, um, you know, what can you do with the data at hand uh, is what we're doing here at First Resonance. Kino, what what gets you excited about the space or excited about First Resonance or or what brings you here? Yeah, totally. So I've known Kron for a while. We knew each other from SpaceX uh, originally, and that's where we sort of connected. Um, After that, I went and founded a company doing electric airplanes. So I've been in aerospace for a long time. I'm really excited about... Uh, tooling that lets us accelerate the rate of innovation. So I I don't think that we are lacking for good ideas or necessarily even funding in the just the innovation space today. But what I see is a lot of companies can't achieve their vision. And I think that's because they just don't have the right tools to do that, especially in hardware and manufacturing. And and say more, what's missing? What what needs to be built? Uh, Well, I think a lot of things. (laughs) Um, But, you know, most, if you walk into most big engineering facilities, what you're going to see is like a lot of people with spreadsheets and Excel. There's a lot of manual process that's going on. And... I just don't think that that's acceptable. So, like, what humans are really good at is, you know, taking big ideas and sort of figuring out general directions to do. But what most people are doing is kind of double-checking minutiae of things that, that are happening. So, like, double-check 
that the weight that your one program output is correct in the other program, which somebody had to manually copy. Um, so I think there's a lot of avenues for innovation. I think where Quran's company is working is right now in manufacturing, which is a really old industry that is very slow. And I think that's very exciting. Totally. Quran, let's zoom out a little bit and talk about the the why now for president. And maybe you could zoom out and talk about sort of the historical view of how this uh, space has sort of evolved o- over time and then talk about w- where we are right now. Yeah, definitely. So if you look back at the history, I mean, I think Keenan just talked about it a little bit. Manufacturing is a super old industry. So when it comes to, um, you know, R&D, science, technology, innovation, we don't really think of manufacturing as as that right now, uh, just because of how much the economy has developed. But if you really just even zoom back 100 years, of course, uh, the Industrial Revolution and manufacturing is what set that off. We all drive cars. We all fly in planes. Um, so really, uh, manufacturing uh, brought a lot of this, uh, you know, the technology that we take for granted now into, into the modern world. Um, uh, but, you know, how that has kind of formed over time is that that industry has actually hardened uh, quite a lot, rigidized a lot of processes. Uh, so in the lack of, and, and we could kind of get to this point later, but in the lack of really connected workflows that the internet brought on in like, you know, 80s, 90s, whenever you say it, it came up after the assembly line for sure. Um, Because of uh, that lack of connectivity, uh, these companies created a lot of processes and rigidized those processes over time. Um, And that has essentially crippled innovation in the way that people work. Uh, Now that the internet is here, it's proven out in other markets, and we can do things like hybrid cloud architectures, um, you know, secure deployments of environments, um, uh, et cetera. Like people are really opening up to this idea. There's a proliferation of sensors um, and just information. Uh, supply chains have globalized. Um, so uh, taking, taking, you know, what everybody's running, um, you know, on the internet, but really amplifying that for the purpose of manufacturing, the time is right to do that now. If you look at like even the 20th century, right? Like uh, processes like Six Sigma, Lean, the Toyota production system, et cetera, like uh, all these processes and, and like rigid structures came, ar- came around. And really the technical innovation at that time was the process or the methodology. Um, whereas now, if you look at it, a lot of innovation is how do you um, just you know, improve the information flow to be so much faster that you can unlock new possibilities, right? So it's not so much about, um, you know, what matrix can we shove this information into or what methodology or process does this align with, uh, but rather how can we communicate much faster uh, so that, you know, innovation is, uh, is significantly improved, right? Uh, whereas in the 20th century, it just wasn't like that. Like manufacturing, robotics, all these things just came up around like, um, statistical process control. How do we, you know, continue to hone in on uh, these parameters that we're setting as humans, right? So something happens out in the field, you go take that analysis to a spreadsheet, you come out with an answer, and you just like plug that back into the system. Now the system is hardened, right? Um, that's not the way that we live. Um, so we even get like funny examples of quality inspectors in manufacturing that use Snapchat. Uh, I don't know if I've shared this one with you, but use Snapchat to actually communicate uh, to groups uh, just because like when you when you spot a problem out on the line, whereas before you would take that into a massive like PFMEA, uh, like failure mode analysis uh, workflow to uh, to to get to the root cause. Now, um, you know, this this particular company, they're snapping a photo uh, and sending it out to their group so they could quickly triage what's going on and like, you know, significantly faster. Right. And that's really the innovation of the company to move faster. Um, and, and that's that's changed from and you know both from the cultural 
but as well as the tooling, right? Snapchat didn't exist in, yeah. in like uh, in the 1960s. So, yeah. yeah. Say more about the changing environment here in terms of, uh, you know, what new technologies enable or how they change the how they change the game. Let's see. So I think, yeah, speed of communication is just one. So at, at its very foundation, the Internet, I think is like, uh, you know, it's just fascinating um, when we when we talk to. Uh, certain companies they they ask oh so this is this is browser based um, you know how do we deploy this uh, how do we download it install it like we hear like all these like weird words that like we definitely take for granted now right um, yeah so at its foundation the internet um, I, I think on top of that uh, open source uh, you know we we used it a lot at SpaceX uh, you know we use a lot of open source libraries that were out there. Uh, we were trying to like move as quickly as uh, you know. It's interesting even from the software perspective to look at this, but like, to how do you move as quickly as Netflix or Facebook or Twitter? Um, even though we were rocket scientists, right? So um, you know, there's the internet, there's open source, uh, there's the way that you deploy all this stuff. So there's faster and more reliable deployment. Um, so in software, all this kind of uh, this movement behind DevOps uh, is definitely an important one. So. By I, I think by um, by commoditizing some of these uh, things that used to be really large workflows, right? Things like software development, then testing it, then you have your release engineer, your quality engineer. That that used to be the case in software. By making all those individual pieces available to mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, uh, the tooling is now there for them to just solve problems like dynamics analysis problems for a rocket. Uh, how do you just use a Python uh, script and then put that into Jupyter Notebook, right? Um, so the analysis part is definitely coming up as well. Data science is doing this in MarTech. It, there's just a lot of reusable tooling that can now be applied to physical hardware. Yeah. Say more about shifts in, in hardware um, or, or changing functions hardware that are, that are interesting or, or relevant here. Well, I mean, I think one interesting one that's kind of pushing the industry is 3D printing is a good example. So you know, traditional manufacturing processes are manual. It's like a, a person has to go, like, screw a screw somewhere. 3D printing is a good example of one that is, it is data-driven in its root. So there's computers and there's data. So it's sort of forcing a lot of these new toolings into a workflow that is very old yeah. as a forcing function. Yeah, that's definitely too. Additive, uh, composites manufacturer, even if you zoom back like five, 10 years, so composites manufacturing uh, is relatively new, um, but, but it, it's much more nuanced in just general kind of metallic uh, manufacturing, uh, casting, forging, et cetera. Um, so, you know, we look at these platform shifts in hardware and they are happening. So composites, additive, I think one of the really uh, exciting ones that, that are kind of coming together, uh, you know, of composites and, and, and additive manufacturing is uh, generative design. Um, so everything happening in generative design is also interesting. And that's really the coming together of hardware and software. Um, and essentially what generative design is, is the ability for a hardware engineer to define the overall constraints for what a system is going to look like and the computer actually figuring out what the optimal geometry of that is, which is very different than, you know, how humans have, have done things in the past, which is like very box square or like even spheres at most. We talked a little about what's led up to this point. Where's everything going? Talk about the future of manufacturing or how you see this evolving over time. So I definitely have an angle. There's a hardware perspective as well. Uh, I think one of the things that's uh, just super important is this is this going back to this multiplayer nature of hardware and manufacturing that has always existed. 
um, you know, how this has been dealt with in the past is by layering on a lot of systems engineers, managers, just in, essentially information uh, nodes, if you will, glue people um, that facilitate the smooth uh, distribution of that information. Now, again, going back to the fact that the internet exists and you can actually do point-to-point uh, interactions where the mechanical engineer can talk directly to the electrical engineer, doesn't have to go through a systems engineer. I think that's that's going to open up a lot of uh, possibility for people to um, uh, you know execute on hardware development in a smaller group. Um, I think small is important for this as well. Um, because it just speeds up innovation. Uh, it takes out those glue people and you, you unlock a lot of innovation, right? By a mechanical engineer talking directly to an electrical engineer, you could potentially find a new geometry for how this board is going to fit in this, uh, in this light computer, for example, right? Um, so that's one, that's one area that I'm super excited about. Yeah, and I think there's a, a good parallel there to the video game industry. I think it's gone through a similar shift. Like, you know, AAA video games for a long time were these huge shops of, you know, thousands of people to create anything meaningful. Um, we've sort of seen that shift back to, like, there's a lot of small, really small video game studios. Like, you can execute on a really quality video game with two or three people if you've got an artist and, like, one or two engineers because the tooling it got a lot better. Um, and I think we'll see that same thing hopefully happen in manufacturing in the next few years. Where do you guys disagree in terms of how you make sense of the space or how you think about the space? Or Yeah, I, I think we disagree on maybe a couple points. Um, I, I think that one of the things that I'm not totally sure about is I, I know in software we like to talk quite a lot about how software has a really great workflow as an industry and you know software has less sort of glue people. I, I think in really large organizations, that's maybe not true in my experience. Like there's a lot of software that exists in large companies where people are still doing relatively mundane tasks. And so I think there's a little bit of a disconnect between where the industry sort of envisions that it is and where it actually is kind of on the ground. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, uh, I do think that um, I think it's very important to recognize uh, the importance of the people that are actually um, critical for that information flow. Um, I think at big companies, even software companies, uh, you know, things haven't, you know, may, maybe there are still glue people. Uh, but over time, one of the things that I find really interesting about software is that the software industry and like software tangential industries are kind of self-perpetuating. Uh, so software engineers that need to improve tooling will go build that tooling and then uh, potentially build big companies off of it. Um, so a lot of these DevOps companies that you might not even you know name right out the bat, but like you know companies like Twilio, we we think about a lot, right? So just telecommunications, text and uh, calling, powering you know an entire ride sharing industry. So that's kind of like pain that came out of like this one thing that became a big company. Um, I, I don't know exactly where this goes for hardware or if you can actually like make things small enough, but I, I do think that it is related to like bringing the actual engineers that are doing the engineering on the hardware closer together to have those serendipitous kind of um, uh, conversations and relationships to say, hey, I'm an electrical engineer, I'm a mechanical engineer, I'm a composites engineer, let's go build something. Uh, that's I have a feeling that that's less likely to happen when there's, uh, you know, 
three systems engineers and three managers sitting in, in that mix. So. Yeah, I think it's hard to say sometimes, like, you know, you as a company maybe have less sort of glue people, but if you outsource, you know, you've got 15 APIs that maybe have like hundreds of employees behind them, like in aggregate, do you have less glue people? Maybe not. Yeah, it's true. hard to say. Yeah, but, that's true. Um, but maybe that's that's okay, and maybe that's how it should be. I know one of the things that we've talked about is uh, this. So one of the things that the hardware industry is really good at is sort of reusing components. So like in the last industrial revolution, everybody kind of settled down on a few things, like the size of a bolt. Like nobody's inventing new bolt sizes for the most part. Everyone kind of has like a set that they use. Um, in software, we're maybe less good at that so far. We don't exactly have like the same bolt size that we use for, you know, even like how do you, there's one million ways to create a button on a website and nobody's really standardized on like how do you do that. And so maybe we need some of that crosstalk happening in software to really accelerate the progress there as well. Yeah, definitely. That, that, that might be true. I think like depending on where you look at, um, I guess, the, the cycles of hardware and software. So while hardware settled down a bolt, a bolt size, um, you know, uh, early on, one of the things that we see a lot is hardware, um, when, when it comes to software, hardware uh, companies viewing themselves as snowflakes. Um, you know, so they reinvent software a lot. Like, oh yeah, our process is different because we use a different type of alloy, and therefore we need a completely different issue management system. And so, um, you know, that that's interesting. And then on the software side, it's it might be like the other side, which uh, the market has by you know, especially um, uh, kind of the developer side of things has has by and far kind of coalesced on how you do payments processing through like something like Stripe, but maybe not on how physical appearances are. So like how you make a button, which is, you know, um, maybe, maybe it's next up in line. I don't know. So even yeah, though, maybe. Like, I don't know. Even though payments <laughs> processing is like maybe way harder. So, um, yeah. What do you think either of you would need to believe to change views <laughs> or to come closer to like either something we need to happen or you need to change um get more context on something or one of the things that i often wish is like there's not a, a lot of good information about like it let's say you want to try to to quantify like how innovative is an organization like whatever metrics you kind of use to decide that like if it's how often you are moving new like features or, or products or whatever it is you know versus like what you planned to do there's not a lot of great information out there about that so like i wish that i had a lot more information from all industries about like how good are you at being innovative and most companies try to keep that a secret i think because they're afraid of like that looking bad or or whatever it is but I think that's what I would kind of need to like, you know, say definitively like, is software industry more innovative than hardware industry today? I agree with that. I think I think like at the baseline, like as as a world kind of even even as as software and hardware come together, uh, and definitely newer companies are pushing on this uh, baselining at just innovation and like value is I, I think critical. Um, uh, so if we can do that, we could probably make a lot better decisions about where we should spend the time in innovating either hardware or software and or software. Yeah, I, I think I think what I'd need to see a lot more of is uh, 
people willing to uh, take best practices uh, and, and put that and encode that into systems and, and having like a cultural openness to that. Uh, because I think without doing that and without trying things, uh, both industries, and I think especially hardware is, is fragile to this. Um, so without actually uh, investing in companies to take uh, you know, uh, their processes and mixing that with every other company that's doing hardware, uh, and seeing what works best. And maybe it's not just one company and maybe it's not just one product, but actually, yeah, pooling this together without, without uh, you know, hardware, the hardware industry actually culturally um, being okay with that, we're not really gonna get answers. Uh, so that, that's like one of the things that I, that I worry about for the hardware industry. Uh, but I also see it as an opportunity, right? I, I see like, you know, for example, despite how old it is and things like that, like the DARPA, uh, initiatives more recently of like rapid and more modular launch uh, in, in like the, the rocket launch space. Uh, like DARPA is actually pushing companies into this and they're partnering with startups, uh, not necessarily the, the players of old. And I, I think that's really where you start to see the needle move in this topic. How do you innovate? Uh, what, what kind of information is okay to share uh, out in the open or internally? Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm optimistic in that way. What are analogies, or one or two, or more of you have from other industries that that can help us uh, better contextualize what what's happened here, or what's happening? Yeah, we talked about a few before. I think one of the interesting ones that we talked about was kind of the music industry is a good analogy. So, you know, a very long time ago, there were very few music distributors and producers. Kind of, there were a few record labels that controlled everything. We sort of decentralized for a while um, with the advent of the internet. There were suddenly a lot of producers and distribution was decentralized. Uh, now we're kind of swinging back to somewhere in the middle there. There's today more than there were, but still kind of relatively few distributors, but many producers of music now. So you have like Spotify and, and iTunes and Google Play and just, you know, kind of a few distributors but it's very easy to produce music and, and get that out into the distribution chain. Uh, I think for manufacturing, we've kind of, we're still in, there were very few <laughs> manufacturers and, and maybe we're starting to see it decentralize. And then what, what I wonder is like, maybe where are we gonna kind of recentralize points where they need to be? Like, is it in software or is it in distribution or what is it? Yeah. Yeah, one, one of the ones that, that I like just like, and, and it's pretty wild, is like advertising. Uh, advertising used to be very centrally controlled. Uh, and, and it seems like that it is uh, continuing to disperse like every day to the, to the point where an individual Instagram influencer now has like equal weight as like, uh, you know, a huge entity did once upon a time. Um, one, of the, one of the ones that I'm like kind of uh, interested in watching play out is retail. Uh, so while there used to be like a few big box kind of like department stores, et cetera, now, uh, it actually got consolidated more, maybe you could say with like Amazon and Walmart. Uh, but now you have, and this is where I get optimistic is like highly curated experiential retail. Maybe this is limited to the big cities and whatnot. Uh, I'm a big fan of Lalabo. So going into like a, a, like a fragrance shop that will make a, um, like an experience for you curated to use something, uh, that's, that's much more special than I would be able to get out of Amazon. Um, yeah, so, so we see these kind of like pendulum shifts, uh, throughout industries. I think to Keenan's point, um, 
uh, yeah, you know, there used to be a big few companies in the 20th century, but if you go back to before then, people were just like casting and forging in their own uh, in their own townships, right? So manufacturing came into that through the Industrial Revolution. Uh, now that the internet is there and information moves faster, there's questions around the supply chain. Can that um, you know unbundle and then re- reform itself around around innovation, right? As opposed to around uh, large, you know, large programs or military, uh, whatever that is, can we actually like align the values of like humanity to just have better hardware in the world around us? Yeah. Uh, let's talk about what we've been talking about from a venture perspective. If we were focused on starting a fund that was investing in what we've been discussing, what would our request for startups or thesis be, or how would we how would we think about evaluating what we're looking for? I think there's a few perspectives of this, right? Like one is on just the hardware side. Uh, I think I think one of the things uh, from a thesis perspective is really um, how is software uh, like investing in companies that take very seriously how is software um, intertwined with 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 our product uh, and our workflow um, and vice versa. So kind of like a full stack hardware software uh, lens on this as opposed to more of the traditional um, you know kind of like. There's a hardware line and there's a software line, and those two are are separate. Uh, I think that's one interesting kind of thing from the hardware perspective uh, to look at from from another thesis of like just organizational systems. Uh, it's I think really a thesis around like what is the future of uh, how people in this space are going to work together. Uh, so you know I think the venture community definitely likes talking about the future of work. Uh, but I think more, more specifically, what is the future of work inside of a factory? Because a factory is you know, kind of a microcosm. It's almost like a city, right? You might have, you know, at SpaceX, we had six, 7,000 people. At Samsung, where I worked, uh, you know, we had a campus of 30,000 people. Uh, what are those connection points and how do you really spur innovation in that, um, you know, essentially, like, I guess, yeah, focus products of future of work in the manufacturing context? Yeah, I think um, another th- point that's interesting that I think about a lot is, Um, The venture community is very focused on sort of getting sort of predictable returns within some known time frame. Uh, That's proving to be very difficult in manufacturing. (laughs) Um, So, you know, any sort of tools or solutions that improve the predictability of an organization to do something in hardware. So, like, I think... You know, Boeing is kind of a high-profile example of this right now. They're having all kinds of problems with the 737, and they they can't predict when it'll be done. Um, that sort of points to they have like a big systemic problem and how they they work. So if you're a company trying to innovate, you need to sort of have some ability to predict when you're going to be done yeah. to be successful in the venture world today. I think. Yeah, definitely. I, I think one thing to just add on to that, and not not to uh, you know, toot our own horn, but we think a lot about um, the shift in this in the manufacturing and hardware industry from uh, change control perspective, which has been you know like very much um, answering those types of questions around time and delivery to the customer around does it meet this process? Um, can we manage the change that's being introduced to the system? And if we can, then we probably have a good good idea around uh, what that outcome is. But that, that's just not true in how fast the world is moving. So, uh, 
you know, to Keenan's point, not just predictability, but just understanding, right? All the various things that are happening through your supply chain, through your material properties, through the, you know, point to point interactions between, for example, that I was going into as a mechanical engineer and electrical engineer, rather than reporting all this stuff into the mothership and assuming that that's going to work out. Like, um, can we understand this in a much more flexible way? Um, uh, and, I, and I think we can uh, with, with some of this tooling coming up. Uh, we just have to connect this tooling up, I think. And, and that's not without a challenge, but uh, there, there is light at the end of the tunnel, I think. Yeah. How does this all relate to sort of, uh, you know, public sector and private sector? And how do we think about the, the interrelationship or, or connection between the two in terms of this, this space? Yeah, so I think, you know, through the 20th century, there's obviously been like a huge intertwining between, uh, you know, the the military uh, and what manufacturing and and America's, you know, um, interest in manufacturing was. Uh, That's obviously starting to change a lot as people are pushing into the 21st century and innovating. Um, You know, and if you look back historically, like how these uh these projects were capitalized um a lot of what happened in like and and continues to happen in the military industrial complexes through this cost plus structure where you're really just like paying for development uh and paying for ideas and r d until the thing is actually delivered and you're looking at like billions of dollars um that's that's obviously not sustainable venture does not expect those kinds of things and cannot you know live within those contexts at all um, as the world shifts into that, people are innovating and, um, you know, the outcomes have to be aligned in certain timelines uh, and, and the value of the, um, the end consumer. Um, I, I think, you know, there, there's a huge analogy to be drawn here about like the past 10, 20 years um, from the software industry and how it has um, coalesced these separate functions between development, testing, delivery and, and maintenance into this this function called DevOps, right? Uh, and that it feels like it kind of happened overnight and it just emerged out of nowhere. I think, yeah, hardware just has a long way to go um, in, that, in that regard, yeah. The sort of traditional government way has sort of been allowing the waterfall development method to exist for a long time. And I think the way the economies of the world are shaping up, that's not really going to be how big projects are funded going forward. You see a lot of the government spending shifting way more into the private sector and they expect kind of the the DevOps, I guess, like philosophy to exist. That's why they're going to private sector. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I think that goes back to the DARPA example as well, right? Looking for innovation. Um, and and I, think, I think it's not, uh, you know, to Keenan's point earlier, it's not just like... Um, and actually, Keenan said this to us very early on when we were starting First Resonance. Um, it's, it's, some, it's a quote that, that stuck in my head for, for quite a while. It's, um, uh, we're not inherently limited, limited by physics uh, to push, our, push ourselves forward uh, in the physical world. Uh, and I think that's key. I think you know, these um, uh, government agencies are looking for innovation without actually knowing what that is. But I think it's just higher higher uh performance of communication and faster information flow yeah and venture has historically or recently been sort of challenged by by hardware right um do you expect that to change over time uh or they've just you know the hardware is hard sort of uh meme do you expect that to change over time or how do you make how do you make sense of this Uh, well i think it has to change or or we're gonna be in a, a tough spot as a society (laughs) like as an earth like we have to keep making things 
And that means we have to keep funding new ways to make things. And so what's, what's going to unlock that change? I really, I think it's, we're going to have to come up with better vocabularies to talk about some of these problems. Like we can't just say this is hard now. Um, and I think we're going to have to figure out. Do we need new funding models? Maybe. Yeah. I, I think that's possible. I think, you know, hardware timescales are long. And so perhaps a different funding model for longer timescales that is not infinite funding would be interesting. Um, but I think even just having a better vocabulary about how do we both accept failure sometimes without failing companies or, or venture funds as well would, would be interesting because we do face, you know, sort of unknown problems more in hardware that kind of is more of a test and see what happens result. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I agree with Keenan that I think it is going to have to change because we really have two options as a society, like one turn inwards uh, and plug into the matrix or, or really like, uh, you know, achieve our destiny and, and uh, you know, expand out uh, and understand and really sustainably relate to the world around us. So um, changing the vocabulary, not just um, calling it a day when a hardware project fails and saying hardware is hard, uh, but what parts of it are hard, right? And really identifying uh, are these supply chain issues? Is it physical matter, right? Which yeah. is likely not. It's not physical matter that's inherently at fault here. Um, so I think this is going to happen through through trial and error. People are going to um, get things wrong. And I think that's one thing that the hardware industry can really learn from, from ventures, like acceptance of failure. Now when the two come together, uh, acceptance of failure and acceptance of like uh, maybe um, a failure of timeline, which is something that's not compatible with tech um, and, and not incremental progress, but something that's like really step function is how you unlock these, um, you know, uh, what hardware has been held back by, right? Yeah. I think it's a perfect place to, to close. My guest today, I've been Keenan Johnson and Karan Talati of First Resonance. We're a happy uh, investor of First Resonance. Guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.